0: My friends, what lays before you is the myriad knowledge of an unfathomable universe. Join our intrepid remembrancers as they explore the Heresy as history. From deep within the farthest reaches of the great library of Tisca, we are the Heresy grad school. So said the Warmaster in his wisdom. Go forth, my sons, and illuminate them. So, uh, listeners, welcome back to another episode of Heresy Grad School. I'm here with Professors Dave, Jason, and myself, Pat, and, uh, we're kind of, I guess we're Basically cleaning up our coverage of, or finishing up, excuse me, not cleaning up, finishing <laughs> up our coverage of uh, the Sisters of Silence.
1: Sounds good.
0: Right. Um, hmm. I don't think we have any housekeeping today. Dave, Jason, anything?
2: We do not. not. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jason. Maybe a tiny bit.
1: I'm worried that people have been playing Zone Mortalis wrong for, like, a really
0: long time. Well, we'll cover that in your section, so. Totes. Yep. So, turns out, everybody, small spoiler, we've all been playing ZM completely incorrectly. Like, not completely, maybe just,
1: like, 50%.
0: But to the point where I might have actually won a couple games. So, we'll get into that.
1: Or maybe, like, I'm the only one that's been doing it wrong, and this is going to sound like complete nonsense. But we'll see.
0: I don't know. Half, half the rules in this game, I don't necessarily understand. I just assume work. So let's be real yeah. honest.
1: That's how most folks operate with this game, and that's okay. It's still yeah. entertaining.
0: I mean, if you roll a d6 and say you hit on a 2, I'm going to believe you unless for some reason you're shooting me with militia, you know? Um <laughs> But anyways, uh, Dave, Jason, where are we starting off tonight? Uh, Let's see. I'm going to be
1: starting off here covering from the vow of tranquility, uh, getting a little deeper on into that, into the art of war of the uh, sisterhood and finishing up with some of the uh, organizational structure of the Sisters of
0: Silence. Very cool. Alrighty, um so i guess jason are you starting off first dave
1: oh, let's see i can start off here and turn it over to dave for some in-depth rabbit hole exploration
0: as he does so well
1: exceptionally so yes so starting out here let's talk about how these ladies are organized what they have to do to get to be a full-fledged sister and the path they take to get there. So uh, if you want to check this business out in the Black Books, we're still in uh, Book 7. We're around page 128 under Vow of Tranquility. So this we touched on very, very briefly last time, but I wanted to get a little deeper into it, kind of talk about some of the specifics of it, Uh, talk about... The um, alternative forms of communication the sisters use. Uh, Dave brought up a really good point uh, while we were chatting a few minutes before we started recording here. Uh, a lot of people seem to have this idea, even uh, in the real world of like American Sign Language, in that it's not very complex, in that you know it's just used to convey basic ideas. And I kind of get where you could sort of have that idea just from a very brief outside look, you know, looking in. But it's really deep and nuanced, and it can convey a lot more than just basic thoughts and emotions. And what the uh, vow of tranquility is for the sisters is kind of the same thing. So the vow of tranquility specifically... The most obvious part of that is the vow of silence that all of the sisters of silence are bound into upon their final induction into the order. Uh, it's their vow their uh, the representation of their vow of duty unto death. And it's where the Divisio Investigatis gets their more common title of the sisters of silence, during which uh, no s- sister utters a spoken word for the remainder of her life. And it represents that no secret will pass from their lips. No mercy or word of clemency will be given. And it's further represented by the portcullis-style, you know, gorget they wear. And that's kind of combined with their death's head skull emblem as its symbol of, you know, order and righteousness within the Imperium. So communication within the Sisters of Silence ranges everywhere from very pragmatic and abrupt combat cant to um, slightly more sophisticated forms that allow for detailed strategic planning initiatives things like that to uh, what they refer to as highly complex and memetically sophisticated systems to deal with philosophical and technical abstracts because what you have to um, (laughs) remember we've memorized it so you don't have to what you have to remember is that the sisters are not just a combat force tasked with hunting down psychers and fighting demons? They're also judge, jury, and executioner for these kind of same concepts. They're the ones that decide: uh, Is this population too far gone from like witch and psycher taint? Should we eliminate them all, or are there parts of this civilization that can still be saved if we excise? these psychers, you know, surgically, are they useful enough or are they going to cause too many casualties? What are the moral, ethical, and philosophical obligations and imperatives behind all of that? And they are able to do that through these more sophisticated systems of communication. And uh, the sisters themselves have to be almost encyclopedias of knowledge uh, that they have to retain Uh, you know, knowledge of warp and warp-based entities, which is kind of pretty unique because uh, time and time again, especially in 40k, uh, we get this idea that knowledge is corrupt. You know, an open mind is like a fortress with its gates unbarred and unguarded. And that knowledge outside that of specifically what you need is just the path to damnation. And the sisters... Kind of highlight this really stark difference between the great Crusade as a whole and the rest of say the Imperialis you know um, army and even the adeptus Ast- or not adeptus Astartes yet Legionus Astartes, uh, how in the dark they're kept comparatively so uh, communication outside of their ranks of course has to happen they are part of the imperium at large they do have to interact with people outside of their own orders so this kind of takes two different paths Uh, one of the more common ones are apprentice acolytes uh colloquially referred to as sisters in waiting Uh, these are the apprentices that are not yet bonded to their vows of silence they're actually known as proliquors and it's kind of interesting and because in Latin, prolicor uh literally means I speak on behalf of, which I thought was kinda a clever little
0: Bravo, black library writer. Bravo. Right? They have or, these... I guess forty or Ford World writer in this case, but still that's that's pretty pretty on the nose, don't you think?
1: Right. Pretty clever on their part. I kinda like that. But uh, proliquors are only half of it. The other half are, uh, they actually have access to these kind of arcane technolinguist systems. And they're able to output the sisters, you know, body language, sign forms, things like that as readable or even audible uh, signals to servo automata. So uh, we kind of see we see examples of that dotted all throughout the black library. And it's kind of neat to know that even 30,000 years in the future, they still have, you know, entertaining issues with uh, speech to text and vice versa.
0: So does it, here's a random thought. So does it translate into, so it registers the, the movements, and I'm kind of going down a tangent with this one. So it registers uh-huh. the movements then does it translate it into machine can't and then translate it into gothic, I guess, in this case? it's a good question. And so at what point would an adept of the Mechanicum potentially just be able to read a sister from her body language?
1: I think we actually get a hint of that in, what is it, binary Secession? Sounds about right. I can't remember if that's specifically it. I can only remember a sister. Uh, I think it's in Master of Mankind. A sister, right? Because the Sister of Silence goes to bargain with Zagreus Cain and okay. he actually reads her body language like more than she would like. So, oh,
0: yeah. Now I remember.
1: Yeah. Now I'm remembering the scene. All right. But yeah, so that's a pretty good example of, uh, you know, in their uh, infinite and terrific wisdom, even loyalist mechanicum, you know, kind of get one up on the Imperium at large occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in the same vein, on top of all of the forms of, you know, from Battlecant to... Uh, these really philosophical and technical abstract sign languages. They also maintain fluency in other nonverbal systems. Uh, They are fluent in such as Astartes battle sign, uh, as well as uh, graph binaric, which I thought was kind of interesting. So, moving along to the art of war of the Silent Sisterhood. So they are, without a doubt, a highly trained paramilitary organization. Uh, They are not just trained to take down demons and uh, psychers run amok, but they're trained to deal with anything from cult uprisings to puppeteered corpses. And they're trained as well as any other military force in the Imperium, bar none. Their focus, of course, is on close combat and short-ranged, high-intensity warfare. Uh, Typically, they're at a numeric inferiority and on unfamiliar ground, but this uh, normally does not trip them up. Uh, Fear is non-existent to them. The honor of their actions is irrelevant. The only thing uh, that they are concerned of is attainment of their goals, and that's the only thing with meaning to them. They regularly employ stealth, uh, covert surveillance, and torture techniques. They employ terror, shock, and awe, and they are not uh, faint about employing the absolute authority of the emperor. Even though these are in large part unaugmented humans, they have every bit the same authority and weight as the legionis custodies, they are not wary of employing that when they need to. And while collateral destruction is kind of to be avoided in cases of necessity, there are no qualms about using it. And the sisters, the way not just they're arranged, but the way the individual sisters are trained and equipped has this intentional retention Uh, Which sounds redundant, but they have an intentionally um, stylized, you know, retention of their techno-barbarian roots. If you remember way back to, you know, the Sisterhood of the Crows, um, they have these arcane undertones, not just to invoke fear, but to really give themselves a distinct entity and a really, you know, murderous, vicious intensity in combat. Uh, it's a deliberate thing that's consistent across their entire line, uh, from the you know ornate power armor they wear that's stylized like you know warriors of antiquity, to their totem-like names of their uh, deployment cadres, like you know the Frost Lynx is the one that always comes to mind for me, uh, to their like unshorn top knots, which fun fact will never be cut. Throughout the sisters' life, except in the case of a sworn quarry escaping them. As to organization, uh, they are this interesting fusion of a legal enforcement agency combined with a secular military order, and their exact numbers are impossible to you know nail down. But uh, extrapolation from you know the requirements of what an undertaking like the Great tithe would necessitate uh, puts them in the tens of thousands. So there are three major offices within, and everyone has a primary commander and the offices underneath of them. So first off, the best well known is the Knight Commander. If you know any of the Sisters of Silence, you know Genetia Kroll. She is the most famed and the most senior field officer of the entirety of the Sisterhood. The other two you might not know as well. Second off is the, mes- uh, the Mistress of the Black Ships. Uh, her name is Veronica Suloth. and in, the, in effect she's kind of like the Grand Admiral of the entire Black Fleet. Um, pretty much the same uh, equivalent position as any other Grand Admiral would be in the Imperialis Armada. Uh, and third, least well-known, is what's known as the Office of the Nemesis Praxia. That's uh, taken up by a sister named Eben Naroda, uh, I fall. Uh, she's m- kind of a two-part to uh, her deal. She's not only the guardian of all the compiled lore on the Empyrean, but she's also responsible overall for training the Acolytes and instituting the programs they go through. Which is kind of, you know, it's kind of an interesting dual position. So from the bottom up, uh, the other ranks of sisters. First off, you have the acolytes that we talked about earlier. There's the first, second, and uh, third order. They're known as the sisters in waiting, and these are the sisters that haven't been officially initiated, initiated, initiated into the vow of tranquility. Uh, Next up, kind of colloquially known as null maidens, this is more or less the main military body, kind of the rank and file, uh, made up of, in ascending order of seniority, the seekers, the prosecutors, and the vigilators. Now, each of those has its own sort of, you know, divergent office tied to it. Uh, like the Pursuers, who are in charge of handling cyber beasts. You have the Achilles Astra, or the pilots and void crew. And you have the uh, Questoria, who are in the investigators and the enforcers. Now, above this more general military body, you have two very distinct departments. Uh, they're referred to as chambers you have the Chamber of Judgment and the Chamber of Oblivion. Now, the Chamber of Oblivion makes up the most elite and the most powerful, uh, both in terms of martial skill and in terms of their uh, anathema. And these are the ranks that the Oblivion Knights and the Knight's Centura are pulled from. On the other half, you have the Chamber of Judgment. And if anything, these are the more feared of the two, despite the fact they are not the most martially skilled. These are where the silent judges of the excruciatus come from. Uh, not only are they interrogators, but they also are charged with weighing the actions of the guilty and the infliction of um, of uh, the infliction of punishment when psychers are being hidden. And they're also the judges as to whether or not a psyker is useful or a danger to humanity. So a pretty big responsibility there. It almost kind of has uh, tinges of what will, you know, be the Inquisition eventually. Uh, better run, but you know, there are hints there. It hasn't all quite broken down in the shitstorm that is the bureaucracy of Warhammer Forty Thousand quite yet.
2: Hey, Jason, do you mind if uh, we take a quick pause there and I um, jump ahead a little bit?
1: Absolutely not. Go for it.
2: You've been uh, been carrying carrying a heavy load there, man. Um, There's some really good stuff there, and I want to get into page 131 because I think it sort of segues nicely into some of those militant ranks and orders. Um, So we're just jumping ahead literally one page, not even. So for our listeners at home, page 131, is a full-color plate of Vigilator Almatara Craver. And so we get some of the stuff that, that Jason's been talking about, which is perfect um, sort of prelude to this. So Frost Spider, Vigilator Cotter, 17th Dominion of the Silent Sisterhood of the Great Tithe, Prospering Center Force. So let's just unpack a little bit of that. So as Jason said... You know, the 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 silent sister Cotters are always sort of very almost animalistic in nature, right? You have the frost length, the frost spider, um, I can't remember some of the other ones, but they're really they're they're almost sort of um, anachronistic, right? They're just very uh, they're very interesting in terms of, of of the way they're named. But what we have here that I think is even more interesting is we have a clue as to the scope of what the Silent Sisterhood is. So, uh, this Vigilator, um, which Jason also just talked about, so she would have um, come from the Order Oblivion, Uh, Vigilator Almatra uh, Cravare uh, is from the 17th Dominion. So, the way I think about this is that the, the galaxy, right, throughout the Great Crusade has sort of been subdivided into dominions, and that her um, cadre uh, of frostbiters would have been from the 17th dominion. And we sort of get supporting fires. Go to page 249, um, and 249 is another sort of beautiful, full-color plate, very similar in style to this one. Uh, It is a Vigilator Mistress, Euphemia King. Um, so we actually have a, a name because she's a mistress um, and she's from the Argent Lynx. So sort of supporting fires as well, right? This sort of animalistic um, uh, style of naming convention for the uh, the cotter. So if you're going to build your your silent sisterhood uh, cotter at home, you know, keep in mind you want to have a, an animal name in there somewhere. A spider, or a lynx, or a fox.
0: I'm feeling the silent wombat. Just putting that out there.
2: Please, please don't. Please don't, no, Patrick. I'm,
0: okay, well, fine.
2: Whatever. Not only, but they probably had no idea what a wombat was, right? That's true. 30, 31st millennium. Like, we basically, most people, we don't know.
0: I mean, at that point, how do you know what a lynx is? I mean.
2: I don't know. You're right. It's, yeah. yeah it's. Just- I
0: understand spiders because, you know. Shoot, a cockroach can survive nuclear fallout, but I mean,
2: they probably still live on void ships. Yeah, but yeah, we have wombats aren't cool. Pat, lynxes are cool.
0: They have opposable thumbs. You leave them alone. Nobody likes
2: wombats. You're kidding yourself. Anyway, no, you're good. No, no worries. Um, So. So in here, we have the 83rd dominion of the Silent Sisterhood. So, I mean, I I think it's safe to say that there were a lot of dominions of the Silent Sisterhood throughout the Great Tithe and the Great Crusade. I mean, these are just two that are included in the century. But let's go back to page 131, because I want to read through this and sort of pull some stuff out and unpack it, right? So archetypal of the sisters of silence present in the censure force, uh, this sister of silence, uh, as much as we can tell from extant records, um, served two decades on a black ship. That's a long time. So we have some idea of how long, you know, these sisters are sort of relegated to black ship duty. And they may they may spend their entire Sort of life in service there before maybe going back to the Somnus Citadel. We don't really know. It's a long time though. Um, so she is a vigilator. So Order Oblivion. She's an executioner. So these. So vigilators are not sent down uh, to planets to sort of bring back like uh, latent psychers for. Um, I guess you know processing into the astrotelepathica telepathica potentially um, as maybe baby sisters of silence, right? That's not what they're there for. Vigilators are the, the most brutal. They're sent down to a planet for one purpose, and that is decapitation. So the most dangerous psychers, um, alpha plus level psychers, you know, the vigilator cotter is going to be sent down to just take them out. Right. Um, so they invite peril and death. Uh, it's the rank that apparently all sister, sisters of silence aspire to. Um, so it's sort of the pinnacle of lethality and sort of the pinnacle, I guess, of honor and prestige within the silent sisterhood. And this particular sister of silence and her, um, Cotter, the frost spider Cotter did a lot of damage on Prospero. And so I want to talk about this because it sort of circles back and connects some of the dots that we talked about before uh, when we were covering Thousand Suns and such. So this Sister of Silence, uh, Almatra Kravari, uh, stands in testament to this, fighting on despite bolter and shrapnel wounds, which should have felled an unaugmented human being several times over. She gave up her life only after plunging her bri- her blade through the torso of Magister Gul Hadrastep of the Thousand Suns Order of Ruin, disrupting the skein of psychic energy with which he drove on the Sayotanama at his command, allowing them to be overcome. So, super badass. Also, Jason, we know about the Order of Ruin, right? So. I think the Sisters of Silence are able to get sort of inside of the Order um, because they're, they're undetectable in the warp, right? So the Order of Ruin is sort of this mathematical polymath, psychically, uh, you know, um, adept. They basically can see the future, but you can't see a Null Maiden with the fucking executioner blade coming at you. So I thought that was really cool to sort of go back and tie all that up. I don't know. What do you guys think?
1: I think it's a terrific tie-in and the attention to detail is frustratingly deep.
0: I know, right?
2: Yeah, I, I love it. I love everything about this. I love that we get, for I think the first time outside of a black library book, we get the name of uh, a Magister of the Order of Ruin. So Magister Gull step. So if you guys want to go and model off that, I think that'd be pretty badass. And he also apparently has uh, some magic robots with him. So super cool. As Um, all good
0: Magisters probably should, if you think about it.
2: I mean, especially of the Order of Ruin.
0: Yeah. And I mean, also, if you're Playing Thousand Suns in a game, rule-wise, magic robots are key. I am
1: partial to the magic robots.
0: Jason, don't you have eight of them? Ten. I, I stand corrected.
2: All right, well, we're going to let Jason get back to it. Um, I will come back, guys, uh, at the end of this and um, give you guys some more... Uh, rabbit holes to go down. I think I'll probably blow a few of your minds, but uh, Jason, let's, let's get back into this.
1: All right. Not too much uh, left to finish up here. Just want to go over the panoply of war. Uh, so in terms of armament and equipment, uh, again, the authority and the reach of the Silent Sisterhood is second to none except maybe arguably the custodians. Uh, really, they're on similar footing with the custodians in a lot of ways, and they have access to more or less anything they could ever need. Uh, everything from, you know, bolt guns specifically engineered for unaugmented humans. Uh, of course, they're uh, very distinctive uh, executioner power blades uh they have stockpiles of like massive advanced and esoteric weapons uh one they call out is a lasbor alchem needler that can render a target comatose for capture as readily as slay and with them a poison's cabinet whose contents have been drawn from across a thousand worlds uh, starting out during the Great Crusade, the sisters, of course, they had access to every single STC design the Imperium ran across. But as the crusade rolled on, especially towards the later crusade, these were replaced uh, by their, in the field with patterns of grav repulsor craft that were outfitted for both covert stealth operations and to um, subdue psychers. And uh, it's said that much like the custodians that the sisters have access to, uh, you know, esoteric weapons that nobody has seen outside of the order created specifically for them by the hand of the emperor himself. This armament and uh, requisition extends to the black ships, which are typically... Boyd craft of considerable size and power, most of them are variants of more commonly known uh, long-range cruiser and battlecruiser designs, uh, but they're very far from stock. They're heavily modified. They're very well defended. They're designed specifically for very extended operations and equipped with systems that allow them to go unnoticed by signal and auspex scan. Uh, again, just like the sisterhood itself, it's impossible to nail down the exact numbers But probably, especially towards the end of the Great Crusade, we're talking thousands and thousands of ships. All of these are ships that come and go more or less unseen, even as the wars of the Horus Heresy are starting to unfold. And they really have no purpose or oversight beyond uh, what they give themselves and their authority, just like the Custodians is absolute. Um, of course, they are specifically designed uh, by the very nature of existence to obtain and hold these psychers. And when the psychers are taken on board, not only are they subjected to processing, to nullification by systems of the ship, but these ships are also very, very heavily uh, automated because the more crew they can cut out of the equation, the less potential, you know, areas for influence you might have from powerful psychers. And, um, some of the most powerful and largest of these ships actually carry limited supplies of exterminate, uh, exterminatus class weaponry. Uh, Interestingly, they tend towards planet-mantle-breaking cyclonic torpedoes and vortex warheads rather than bioweapons for reasons of intended outcome. Uh, This allows them to enact world kill protocols or the more confined, if no less absolute, annihilation of an area if a rogue-psyker crisis threatens something like a catastrophic warp breach. So with that said, I'm going to turn it back over to Dave because he has some pretty terrific information to drop on that subject.
2: Yeah, so Jason and I were having a little conversation about the fact that Sisters of Silence battleships would carry exterminatus class weapons because I remember reading um, a Black Library short story. I think it's... uh, Ghosts will not speak. Um, with the main character is sort of Amandira Kendall, who is a uh, sort of a ex um, sister of silence. Right, she's part of um, Malcador's um, secret army. Now what do they call Jason uh, the uh, Tertius something. I can't remember anymore. Um. But uh, but so she she actually in this short story I mean spoiler alert right uh, she does do the thing and um, so I thought that was interesting there was a little bit of a potential lore conflict but then I thought more about it and I thought well maybe these black ships are just carrying um, you know these exterminatus class weapons but they're not really using them for full exterminatus. Maybe they're just, you know, using them to take out, you know, basically a, a pandemic, right? Like a, like a psych outbreak outbreak um, that threatens to take over, you know, a continent or a hive world. So maybe that's why we don't have any records of it. And then the other thing that I thought about was where, why would we ever know, right? So if it's a black ship doing exterminatus on a planet that's gone and basically... Had a warp outbreak that's so severe that requires exterminatus. Like, you're not going to read about that in sort of the imperial times, right? Like, that's it's going to be sequestered. You're you'll never hear about that. Man, if they can make 913 disappear, I mean, they could certainly make a planet that's gone rogue disappear. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and then obviously, if Amandira Kendall you know, was the first human to declare exterminatus. Maybe she was just comfortable with it, man. You know, maybe she, maybe she'd got a couple, uh, under her belt before she, uh, she dropped that, uh, that cyclonic warhead in, uh, ghost shall not speak. But anyway, um, those are sort of thoughts to ponder, right? As we do here to wrap up sort of the, the, the text coverage of the Silent Sisters. Um, we have one box left on page 130. And I'll get into some of my um, sort of conspiracy theories. Uh, and that is the pariah gene. So the pariah gene's always been sort of uh, analogous with uh, Silent Sisterhood, No Maidens, et cetera. And so, But it's never been proven, right? There's never been this direct connection between there's a quote-unquote pariah gene, uh, which equals a psychic gnome. And I thought that some of the text here was really interesting, that there was an imperial archaeotechnologist core uh, that existed during the Great Crusade, as well as the Mechanicum, apparently got into this, right? Um, Because that's what the Mechanicum does. Uh, So, But no one was able to prove this this connection. And the emperor himself gets involved and he puts a moratorium on it. The emperor himself basically says, no further study on Psyker null phenomena, you know, basically on pain of death, right? On pain of extermination. So he retains the sole sort of mandate to experiment with with sort of psychogenes. And so we don't know, uh, you know, and we have uh, allegorical evidence of that even up until the 41st millennium uh, when Eisenhorn uh, discovers Beckwin and sort of he figures out what she is, but he can't test for it, right? He sort of is like, his test is like, i'm gonna put you really close to this alpha plus psyker and uh okay you shut him down cool you're a null right but there's there's no other test for it um so i think that's really interesting uh i think some of the other ponderings that we get out of this uh, we just don't know was this the result of some human genome manipulation was it a dark age or technology experiment that goes awry Or was this some kind of evolutionary, um, you know, sort of human evolutionary development against the warp? Uh, Could have been Xenos tampering, um, right? So Xenos could have come in and, I don't know, done some some gene editing along the way. I think this is also interesting. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Pat. Oh,
0: sorry. No, I was just thinking about it. Um, So... Uh kind of connecting that in with thousand sons and and Prospero doesn't Prospero have those um psychically attuned beetles that essentially like hunt psychers the, I, Sinu-
2: the Sinu- yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: I was thinking about this if because i was, because this is our last episode with with sisters, I was thinking about so why wouldn't because, I mean, I guess if we're following some type of evolutionary mandate that you'd think people say on or human beings on Prospero would then evolve to be more inclined to be null than psychic. Like if there was some way to evolve that way, that is.
2: I think that's a really good point, Pat. So you're basically saying there's evolutionary precedent for this, right? So the sinew and that like are attracted to psychic beings, but we'll still lay like mind eggs in just any old person.
0: Maybe they wouldn't,
2: maybe they wouldn't lay mind eggs in um, a null, right? Maybe they'd be too anathema for a a sinewion to to do that. And I think that's, I think that's a a decent hypothetical. I think that the problems that we don't know is like, what's the, what's the occurrence of a psychic null? Right. Like, would you even have the sort of the downtrace genetic population to create a viable population?
0: Right. Because, I mean, at least from, you know, if you look at the Eisenhower book, Eisenhower book, they're just completely and utterly rare. Like, yeah, one in 500 planets might have one on it.
2: Right. Whereas, order, order of magnitude above and beyond what a what a psych be.
0: Whereas, like we've discussed,
1: they kind of narrow it down in one of Sandy Mitchell's books. They mention that if a psyker is one in a million, then a blank is one in a million psychers, which is kind of like an off the cuff, you know, guesstimate. But, you know, one in a billion sounds
0: about right. Yeah. And I mean, but it, it leads you to believe that there definitely has to be some type of genetic tampering or cloning or what have you.
2: Yeah. And I think what's the most interesting really about this box, right? Which is more of a thought provoking box than answers any questions, uh, which is, it's probably why Jason gave it to me, but um, is uh, the fact that there has never been a documented case of a psychic null in a legion, legionis Astartes, right? So like zero. So we have plenty of instances of psychers, right? They're librarians. Um, You know, they can be called different things depending on the legion, sort of the the timeline. But we have zero ever historical incidents, incidents of a psychic null within Space Marines, which suggests one of two things. Um, Space Marines genetic makeup does not allow for that because they have a portion of the Emperor's sort of gene code within them. Um, so they're maybe even to the smallest possible extent psychic. Um, and that, that mutation, if it were a mutation, is just not possible within uh space marines. So I thought that was kind of cool.
0: Well, and also it, it's just surprising, at least within the 40k millennium, because you have so many, because at that point, the legions aren't, are, are being created, or I guess not legions, but chapters are essentially just taking as many serfs or, or initiates as possible. And so the probability of there being, uh, a you know, a, a Stardys null is, is even more likely, I feel.
2: Well, to go completely off the reservation on this, right, and sort of tie it back to Belisarius Call and his great work. Look, man, if Belisarius Call could make a bunch of fucking psychic null space marines, wouldn't he do that, right? Wouldn't he just make all the space marines blanks? Because. I mean. You'd be inured to the warp, literally.
0: But so. but also look at it this way, Gilliman has also told him to stop tampering with things. And and please, listeners, if you haven't caught quite gotten down the the rabbit hole of the new call book, this is just going to be a slight spoiler, not a not a major spoiler. This legitimately gets introduced within maybe the first two chapters of the book. But call has a essentially a indentured primaris marine called primus and he is dave and i kind of gone down the rabbit hole a little bit on this and we think that he has part um primark in him he's he's larger than any other primaris
2: i didn't say that i did Uh, not say that well that was that was not my take on that. Fine, but we well, digress. He, we digress.
0: We digress.
2: We digress. But <laughs> he
0: he is he's more psychically attuned than at least the psychers that they bring up in the book, and he's able to hide his powers. So that makes me think: if Saul, if excuse me, if Call can manufacture, you know, manufacture a psyker, what what's? I think the only thing that's stopping him from making a null might be. Gilliman saying, hey, you got to stop messing with these things.
2: Yeah, it's never stopped call before. I, I just, he's, he just doesn't have, the, I don't think he has enough. But, but anyway, like, we'll leave that to the listeners to, to decide. Um, to get back on track with the Sisters of Silence, I just have a little bit further to go here. So going back to page 249 and Vigilator Mistress Euphemia King of the Argent Lynx, also a Vigilator, uh, 83rd Dominion. Uh, I want to go down the rabbit hole sort of the same way we did uh, with uh, the other uh, Vigilator. And so some really cool background sort of atmospherics here, right? So the only reason we know about Euphemia King and uh, her exploits on Prospero uh, are because they were attested to with some clarity, thanks to Vox and Pick, pick evidence from field assessor Jacques Culip of the Administratum Logistica Corpus, attached as an observer to the 10th Sarkozyan Voltigers of the Imperialis Auxilia. So, right here, just I mean, amazing background atmospherics, right? So we have a whole new sort of branch of the administratum. We have the Logistica corpus, and we have a field assessor. So if you're running an RPG, um, you're welcome. Uh, And then we have a whole new uh, sort of solar auxilia unit, the 10th Sarcazon Voltigers. So no background on those guys, sorry, but uh, feel free to go down the rabbit hole on that. So what you would immediately think of uh, reading this, right, as you read down here, is that so Jacques is sort of some kind of maybe embed, right? Like he's just like a remembrancer or he's like an embed reporter stuck in with, with the uh, solar auxilia, but he's so much more than that. So the solar auxilia is trapped on Prospero behind the advance of the space Marines or the, sorry, the space wolves. Um, As they go through the old city and they just get taken apart, right? Sniper psychic assaults, um, they get shredded. Their command is gone. Uh, The Imperial overseers assigned to them are gone. And so the entire regiment is sort of in disorder near breaking. And so the silent sisters deploy onto their position to sort of shore them up. Right. But you know, if you're the solar auxilia and then all of a sudden these like warrior maidens, um, that don't talk come in and you've got no way to communicate. Um, it's gotta be, and you're in the middle of like basically getting sort of psychically taken apart. It's gotta be a little disconcerting. Right. So what it says is that, uh, Culip, this sort of whoever logistica corpus administratum Jacques Culip is, is like the intermediary that restores order um, through the Sisters of Silence. So he basically bridges the gap. And so that makes me think of him completely differently. Um, he's either a singular individual, or he has some type of authority that far exceeds what you would think of as sort of an embed reporter, right? Um, what's really cool is that over the next hour, several hours, the Solar Auxilia, the Voltigers, um, they hold off counterattack after counterattack, psychic maelstrom, sort of reality coming apart. And despite 60% casualties, they maintain their position um, basically thanks to the Silent Sisters. Only five of the Silent Sisters that deployed out of their detachment, so 30 in all, which gives us a clue back to what a Cotter should be. So that's a clue back to what a Vigilator Cotter would be. So 30 Silent Sisters. I don't think we have that spelled out anywhere else that I've been able to find. So that's a pretty cool little uh, Easter egg. Uh, Only five survive, including Vigilator and Mistress Euphemia King. So um, what do you guys think about that? OK, I am going to. <laughs> All right. So yeah, nobody was there. Um, Yeah. Go ahead, Pat. You got anything?
0: Oh, no. I mean, I just... Just on the the deep dive in and of itself is interesting. And um, you know, the fact that these silent sisters can can even shore up. I mean, I know obviously, or not obviously, but they have some way of of talking to uh, the the solar auxilia that that's kind of stuck there. But it's just you know, going back to that whole how do they communicate um, with what Jason was talking about, it just kinda adds a little bit more in depth
2: right i mean you 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 sort of i mean this this goes to sort of the credit of the forge world authors and the forge world background writers right right which is you've got to think through these things right so if a silent if a if a cotter of silent sisters deploys in support of a solar auxilia regiment they can't talk man right and the solar auxilia i mean as elite as they are not trained in thought mark or battle mark to the extent that we know of. I don't, I don't think they have that level of sort of psycho indoctrination or training. Um, So to their credit, they thought through this. And I think that's just, I mean, that's awesome, right? I mean, that's sort of, that's the genius of, of Alan Bly and the Forge world team that people talk about. But let me wrap this up. I've only got a short, Easter eggs, and I think they're going to blow your mind. Okay, so we're going to book eight on this. All right, so uh, book eight, page 25, his talons, second paragraph. Are you ready? It's going to blow your mind.
0: I'm waiting for it.
2: Here we go. So I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read this much. The Sisters of Silence were known to be witch-seekers, and though they served their quiet purpose to hunt out valuable human psychers for the choirs of the astro-telepathica, it was also their discretion to further investigate the activities of a rogue psycher. Such investigations were wont to reveal the usage of a developing psycher with ill intent by a cult or through the abuse of local domini of ancient and forbidden practices. Whether such occurrences were accidental or intentional, to have touched the other side taints a psyker and any persons with which they were in contact, resulting in the wrath of Sisters of Silence being unleashed upon a locality in the form of pursuer cadres, Arini's jet bike squadrons, and the dreaded divider stealth craft. Hmm. Right.
0: What's a divider stealthcraft?
2: What's an Irini's jet bike squadron?
0: Well that too, yeah.
2: Right? So no nope. I mean Yeah. So so here's me going number one, God damn it, book nine come and drop soon. And then number two. Uh what a modeling opportunity. Build your Sisters of Silence jet bike squadrons right now. And then, I mean, a divider stealth craft, Pat, it's just got to be a bigger, better, uh, what is it, Acquisitor, right?
0: Yeah, but the thing is, is when I think of, I, an Acquisitor is almost too clunky. And I know, I know, with with Warhammer, things can be clunky and, and big and still be stealthy, but still it's like well, I'm I mean, imagining it... you know, I'm going into my like I'm imagining like a stealth fighter like sleek and slim, or like even um
2: a Lord of War choice.
0: Yeah, or shoot, maybe even a fast attack transport that is like a precursor to the um the Death Watch's uh Shoot, what's Cor- it called?
2: Corvus. Corvus. Yeah, the
0: Corvus Black Star.
2: Well, the, the Caron Inquisitors are transports. Um, so they definitely fill that role. Um a divider stealth craft. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what Maybe where, their we'll own variant
0: of lightning that has stealth. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But I just thought that was boom, amazing. Sisters on bikes. <laughs> definitely we have in the writing from Forge World, Irini's Jet Bike Squadron. So, if that doesn't sound like a unit entry to you, I think you're smoking crack. All right. Last, last Easter egg, last lore rabbit hole that we're going down. And then we'll turn it back over to Jason for his segment here. Page 13, the Mariposa campaign. So, 988. M30, The Mariposa Campaign. A pocket of space comprising twelve subsectors is released from a warp storm which had raged from the time of the Age of Strife. For three years, the Blood Angels, Imperial Fists, Imperial Army, and Sisters of Silence battle against hordes of warp-twisted cults of the Mutant and Psyker, bringing 34 worlds into compliance. Full stop. 34 worlds. Never heard of it. Anybody else?
0: Not on my radar.
1: Nope.
2: Not here either. Perfect. Well, there you go, guys. Uh, that's, That's my bringing you crazy I don't know atmospherics
0: and stuff we should pay attention to for the next book, or shoot, maybe, maybe, just maybe they'll give custodies and sisters their own red book.
2: You know, custodies got a really big call Okay, so I don't, I don't need anything more for custodies. Like, I, I don't like they're good. I need more sisters.
0: Yeah are Are you now on the? the full sister's train? Like, are you going to go out and buy more? Like as soon as they come out with those sweet, sweet jet
2: bikes, Dave, I would probably buy a jet bikes. Yeah.
0: Are we going to see a Dave Dennett, all jet bikes all the time, uh, list for both, uh, Nova and Adepticon.
2: Mm, maybe we'll have to maybe. see. You gotta have rules for us, Pat <laughs> rules, man
0: rules. Schmools. It's all about the lore, dude. Right. That's what right. we care about here.
2: That's what I'm going to tell my opponent. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, don't worry about the rules, man. It's about the lore. It's good. <laughs> All right. That does it for me, guys. I'm going to turn it over to Jason for some sweet zone mortalis. Who
1: boy. All right, Cass. Let's, uh, let's talk some zone mortalis. So, uh, as i was talking about earlier uh, dave and i were kind of talking this over and at first we were thinking with the new zone mortalis rules just a couple weeks old maybe we should go through it check it out kind of update folks on the differences between the older set of rules from the third book uh third black book or uh you know compared to this new set that just dropped a couple weeks ago and Reading through them, I realized there are not that many differences. uh, Really not long enough to make a segment out of. And as I looked through it, I realized there were even less differences than I had originally thought. So a couple of important things that almost everybody I've ever played a ZM game with has kind of assumed and has gotten wrong. Which uh, I think would be helpful to kind of just go over the ZM rules in not their entirety, but some of the standout points that really make the game feel different from just another frontline game or a Centurion game. And some of the things that really make Zone Mortalis feel unique and fun. Uh, it's probably my favorite type of game to play at the moment. The smaller games go faster, they feel snappier, they feel like individual squads and individual choices make such a big difference compared to kind of the safety buffer you have of redundancy and things like that in larger games. So... Um, If you guys want to check these rules out, which I definitely suggest hopping on the ZM train, uh, you don't need a big expensive four drawer board. Uh, I have a modular MDF one that was about 300 bucks altogether, and it has all the terrain and walls and helpful little magnetic sections you'll ever need. Uh, Even less than that, all you have to do is clump up some decent-looking, you know, urban terrain, pretty close, and it works spectacularly. I've played dozens of games with just dense terrain, and it works just fine.
0: Or go buy the new uh, Necromunda set.
1: Uh, I really want that, but uh, <laughs> it's a little uh, it's a little rich for my blood at the moment. So, uh, starting out. Forge World just released this a couple weeks ago. It's a 10-page document. Uh, has a couple of updates, has a couple of fun new missions and objectives. Uh, what we're going to check out, uh, you can breeze through on page two, uh, preparing for Zone Mortalis, and uh, you know some of the smaller force organization charts, since you're probably going to be playing between 500 and say 1250 or so points wise a uh, couple of smaller things a couple of things to uh you know take into account whether you're attacker defender combatant things like that uh one thing to note though this update that forge Roll released as a pdf online does not include the stratagem stuff for that you're still going to need a um copy of the black book. However, um, you can play without stratagems just fine. I've done it for dozens of games. And while they are fun, you're not going to miss a whole lot if you don't include them. So uh, just a couple of things to remember when you're selecting forces for Zone Mortalis, uh, and possibly one of the only big changes between the old rules and this new update. Uh, No units can select a designated transport. Uh, No unit with a starting size greater than 15 models. Uh, However, that doesn't include independent characters. No vehicles other than walkers can be chosen unless their models are no more than four inches wide. Uh, No flyers or monstrous creatures of any kind. Or, I'm sorry, no flyers or flying monstrous creatures. Monstrous creatures themselves are still very much on the menu. And uh, the big thing here, no model mounted on a base larger than 60 millimeters may be chosen. So this doesn't sound like a big thing, but it's a kind of big departure from the older rules, which only called out monstrous creatures, um, not walkers. So walkers uh that are larger than that things like uh leviathans and telamons are no longer eligible for zone mortalis, which I mean Oh no, heaven
0: forbid. Right.
1: Come on. It's it's not super fun to do in the first place. I mean, it was kind of funny when my Magos would run through them with a chain fist, but for everybody else, come on guys. Now um they do say uh the terrain may still confine you even with these rules and guidelines so that's something to be aware of you cannot move through something that doesn't physically allow it so um you know designating terrain on the next page you know everything should have clear entry points where units can gain access Uh, It's something that you talk, you know, out with your opponent beforehand. Um, They have the rules for bulkhead doors and airlocks. Not super complicated, just the difference between locked, accessible, doors that are controlled by one side or the other and how to destroy them. Spoiler, they're a vehicle with a single hull point and armor value 13. So you can destroy them with any penetrating or glancing hit better if you have wrecker so next page over core zone mortalis special rules these are the bulk of what kind of makes zone mortalis feel really cool so um a couple of things to take into account in essence all of the terrain in the main rule book is essentially at a negative one so things like light debris um Barrels, stuff like that is going to be a six plus to your cover. Uh, ruined wall sections, vehicles, bulkhead, corners, etc. It's going to be a five up. Uh, fortified structures like pillboxes, what have you, is a four up. Uh, and again, that is uh, terrain that's area and uh, fortifications like that. Models taking uh, go to ground within that area, terrain, or behind a fortified structure gains a plus two to your cover save rather than a plus one. So uh, it says, again, only a model that can physically fit within the space on the tabletop can move through or into a zone mortalis regardless of its type. It's kind of a common sense sort of deal. Uh, also, you can find ammunition dumps, comm relays, gun emplacements, and shield generators as appropriate uh next over no barrage weapons they cannot be used to fire indirectly into or out of a zone mortalis only direct fire can be used uh terrain effects by unit types now this is something that kind of shuffles the emphasis towards infantry um, because they are a lot more forgiving uh bikes jet bikes artillery cavalry walkers treat all difficult terrain they encounter within zone mortalis as dangerous terrain as well uh should any of these use a turbo boost they must take a dangerous terrain test regardless of the ground they cover and regardless of any normal rules they possess to the contrary so even you white scars players out there where everything has skilled rider does not count if you turbo boost uh any monstrous uh excuse me any models class it says jump or flying monstrous creatures which move more than six inches in the movement phase must take a dangerous terrain ch- test every time they do so so any uh, assault squads you've got uh any arl attacks any um anything that's moving as jump infantry or monstrous creature has to take that um Dangerous terrain in the movement phase. Uh, flyers can't enter a zone mortalis at all, except if in hover mode, then they're classed as skimmers. All other ve- vehicles, including skimmers, treat ZM as difficult and dangerous in its entirety. That is, its entirety, not just areas of difficult terrain. Uh, infantry, monstrous creatures, and beasts treat ZM as they would any other battlefield. So where specific areas, you know, are difficult terrain or dangerous, then they're subject to those effects. Otherwise, ZM is open ground. And wrecked vehicles are both difficult and dangerous if destroyed in ZM. So a small thing for objectives. They're generally impassable. Don't block line of sight. However, in order to claim them or contest them, an eligible unit must have a model in base contact, A little bit different from normal, which was within three inches. Kind of makes it feel a little more claustrophobic. Uh, Next off, Preserve, Scouts, Infiltrators. Those rules are all unchanged, but entry and exit points are not just one large swath of the table. They're specified at the start of play and those are the only way these units can enter. Uh, Units which are described as being able to teleport are the only kind of units that can use deep strike Um, like phallax that use jump packs to come in cannot use deep strike only those which can just uh, be described as being able to teleport or materialize from the warp. now again that's a tiny bit of common sense that you're going to have to work out yourself uh, so that completely rules out Jump Infantry as being able to make use of Deep Strike anymore. However, any unit that does try that Deep Striking, if they scatter into a bulkhead or a wall section, they'd suffer a Deep Strike mishap, and they subtract negative one uh, to that roll on the mishap chart, so it makes it kind of dangerous. You don't want your guys to show up inside of a wall. doesn't work out well. Ask Gulliman. He remembers. He doesn't like it, but he remembers. Now, next page over. These are the fun ones that people want to know about. And I've figured out that people kind of have sort of like a hodgepodge inclination of how these, you know, quote-unquote fun ZM rules work. I've noticed that most people have this idea of ZM as, well, it's small terrain. Uh, Anything with a template has shred. And uh, you get to roll Overwatch on full BS if you pass an initiative check. Woo, shred. Right? It's good stuff. So that first part is correct. Um, Anything with a blast marker or a template gains shred while inside zone mortalis. Uh, If that blast or template already has shred, it instead gains plus one strength. Uh, Two fun thing if a scatter roll takes a blast marker center point into contact with a wall it detonates on contact with that wall instead of scattering further Uh, the weapons effect resolves from that spot which is a little bit different from normal targeting Uh, another fun one is nowhere to hide Uh, this one I think I've never seen anybody remember but it's terrific. For close combat ar- uh, based armies, uh, what it breaks down to is in ZM, the victorious side in an assault, can re-roll their sweeping advance. That's kind of a small deal, but it's a super big deal. Now, uh, as well, contrary to the usual rules for falling back, when that unit fails a morale check, a unit's first fallback move is directly away from the enemy. Subsequent moves, if they remain broken, are towards the nearest exit unblocked by the presence of enemy models. If a unit trapped while falling back by enemy models cannot escape, it is immediately destroyed. Now, again, this is something that takes a little bit of common sense that you're going to have to rule, you know, kind of between the two of you. Uh, another fun one that a lot of people I don't know if they know it exists, or and they forget it, or what have you, is Blind Panic. Uh, if a unit falling back moves through another of the player's own units, so within one inch of it, the unit moved through must also take an immediate morale check or fall back themselves. Uh, that's super fun. And it makes for the sort of potential for a panic cascade that I used to love in Warhammer Fantasy. And not love so much,
2: because, you know, I used to play Beastman. But that's, Jason, I mean, that's so perfect, right? I mean, it makes you think of super tight corridors where you just see, you know, like, your buddy running down the aisle screaming, And you're like, "Um, I don't know what's up there, man. But uh, it can't be good. Right? It's so distinct
1: and characterful. And it's perfect for the setting. I love it. So, guys, now let's talk the big one for Zone Mortalis, uh, Reaction Fire. Now, I don't know about you guys, but everybody I have ever played ZM with has treated Reaction Fire as an initiative check. And there's a very important distinction. I thought it used to be an initiative check, and now uh, it's changed in this update, but it is not. It has never been an initiative check. It has been a test on majority initiative, which is different. So um, just a few points of clarification. Uh, Works more or less just like Overwatch. Uh, Units can't make a reaction fire if they're engaged in close combat or falling back. Uh, Units equipped with cataphracty pattern armor, which are unable to make Overwatch attacks, can't make reaction fire attacks. Same deal. If you can't make Overwatch, you can't make reaction fire. So, uh, key points here, pistol assault and rapid fire weapons only. Uh, Heavy weapons can be used. And I would assume Salvo too, even though they don't call it out. I think that's just a tiny omission, but anyhow. Heavy weapons can only be used for reaction fire if the model carrying them has Relentless. So Tartarus Terminators, um, things like that. Uh, Other weapons in the squad can make normal Overwatch attacks if they're eligible to do so alongside the rest of the unit's reaction fire. So something to keep in mind. Uh, Blast weapons can't be used to make reaction fire, just like Overwatch. Template weapons basically ignore reaction fire. They just inflict the same D3 hits they always have. Uh, regardless of whether reaction fire is successful or not a unit can only make a single reaction fire against the first unit they're assaulted by in any given turn keep that in mind they can't pick and choose Um, and a reaction fires attack is made after a charge is declared but before charging models have moved casualties resulting from reaction fire can cause an initiative an assault to fail so Uh, A reaction fire is carried out exactly like Overwatch, except that the unit in question must first roll equal or under its majority initiative score on a D6. If successful, it can fire its weapons at the assaulting enemy with their full ballistic skill. If unsuccessful, the uh, the unit may make a normal Overwatch as normal. A unit may not use the counterattack special rule if it is used reaction fire. So, big thing here. Test on majority initiative is not the same as an initiative check. An initiative check, like any other squad-wide base check, defaults to the highest. Um, It's something, it's an important thing, especially for Mechanicum, because Mechanicum, their cyber familiars are out in full play, and you cannot use the re-roll for a statistic check for a cyber familiar, if it's a majority initiative test. Now, uh, you have to use the majority initiative too, which considering most of your units are automata or thalax or what have you, it's kind of, you know, a problem for Mechanicum, uh, who are generally low initiative. Also, uh, it means that Astartes do not get the boost from having a single character, such as a chaplain, a praetor, what have you, in the unit, because the majority initiative is still four. So that's something I have found almost everybody I know of, myself included, has been playing wrong for quite some time. But now we know. So, next page over, these are quote-unquote optional Zone Mortalis special rules, but honestly, you guys should play with all of them besides maybe Enemy Unknown. I've tried the Enemy Unknown deal where you use tiny markers instead of the units until they come within line of sight, and it's fine. It adds a depth to it, but it also adds like some bookkeeping, and it can be a little clunky. Otherwise, though, these others should definitely be things you check out.
0: For you 40k players, it's kind of like how if you play against Gene Stealer Colt or currently play Gene Stealer Colt, where you get to set up a bunch of things as blips in your first turn instead of uh, actual models. Yeah. Very similar. Just, just to give, you know, current reference. Not saying ZM isn't current, but something maybe more palatable for, for people who play 40K primarily and listen to us. So,
1: <laughs> so uh, three different things here to check out. First off is attrition. This one just makes sense with ZM. um, um Whenever a mission result is for any reason a draw, then the force which suffered the least number of destroyed units is the victor. In tiny, vicious combats like this, things like that can make all the difference. And personally, I think it should be included in all of your games. Uh, Next off is the catastrophic damage. Um, This is to represent some of the crazy perils of, you know, underground battle or you know, buildings in a war zone that you're kind of risking bringing the roof down on yourself. Uh, It's pretty terrific. The way these work, it's this table over just to the right here. Uh, Two to five has no effect. Everything six and up has something increasingly hilarious as it goes. Uh, Each time the special rule in effect, every turn after the first, uh, each player rolls a d6 and you add them together. Uh, and reference this chart. So, the higher up the chart it goes, the more disastrous things can be. Uh, if any ordnance weapon has been used in the preceding turn, add plus one to the total. So, uh, there are things like Dust Fall. Um, all models have their ballistic skill and initiative reduced by one. Uh, all the way up to Quake, if you both roll sixes, every model on the table must pass a strength check or be removed as a casualty. Models without a strength score are automatically destroyed and buried under tons of rubble or earth. So sorry, land speeder, suck it. Uh, independent characters can reroll this test if failed, and if a twelve plus is rolled again, treating treat this as having no effect. So the last one, uh, cold void and poisoned air. This one is terrifically fun. It uh, c- contributed to one of the best games of ZM I've ever had. Uh, with my co-host Patrick, where my thousand sons fought uh, Patrick's spooky mechanicum across the uh, hull of a uh, cruiser to uh, try and vie for control of like a power node on the outside of a spaceship. So, um, this is to represent fighting in Zone Mortalis with poison gas, choking industrial fumes, extreme heat, as well as Uh, depressurized areas of space vessels so uh, when these rules are in effect the following apply Uh, all weapons and attacks with a strength of four or better now cause rending unless their target has hardened armor void hardened armor and armor value or has a save of two plus in the case of attacks against mixed units apply these rending wounds to the more value vulnerable targets first Uh, All weapons and attacks which already have rending now rend on a roll of five or six. uh, And less the same deal. Their target's hardened, has an armor value, or save a two plus. And lastly, weapons and attacks which have the blast special rule now gain pinning if they did not already possess it. Uh, A terrifically fun way to play this is to have one or two rooms in behind bulkheads on your ZM map, start using these rules, and if those doors are open, now all of the adjacent passages have these rules, as they become depressurized, or the choking industrial fumes seep into them. It's terrific, and it's another
0: Still don't really like these rules.
1: (laughs) It's another pile of rules. Because you beat
0: me at the first game.
1: Definitely be used in every game. Pat's not salty at all
0: no not at all Hmm.
1: but they all make for a terrific time and uh, they're only optional if fun is also optional
2: you know Jason this makes me think of two things right number one is um, the cold void rules um, so actually sorry blood in the void that I think are book one or book three of uh the sort of the harris the horse heresy black books i I think they still expand on that rule set right like there's catastrophic decompression um shit the lights can go out you can have power surges doors can open and close i remember playing they're
1: terrifically random
2: they're they're terrifically random and they really adds so much atmosphere to the game. And so I think they're still valid. The only thing I would replace, if anything, would be that Blood in the Void. Um, sorry, the Cold Void uh, rules, which I, I mean, I don't honestly, the way you described it, I don't think it changed anything. Um, but then the other thing I wonder, and because none of us have gotten our hands on uh, the new, um, man, what's it called? The Necromunda box. I wonder dark if there uprising. Are, yeah, dark dark uprising. It's like the only necromita thing I don't have, literally. Um and I want it so badly. But uh I wonder if there are specific ZM sort of atmospheric rules in there. I bet there are. And uh if they're not, there should be. Uh well,
0: they might be. More towards Necromunda, but that doesn't mean some brave soul can't take those rules and, you know, update them a little.
2: What's sort of my point, though, right, is that you've, so so to listeners, so go out uh, and and sort of data mine these rules, right? Look at the black books, um, look at this new version of ZM, which is sort of the same old version of ZM with a few rules clarifications. And sort of data mine that, and, and build your own, um, build your own atmosphere, and build your own narrative around that, right? Because I, I would agree with with Pat and Jason. Um, this is this is really the most fun I've had. And and you know who else does a great job at this is uh, the Gray Legion guys at Nova. They always come up with crazy shit for ZM. You know. Um, so you can have a lot of fun with that. I think Jason just gave you sort of the core rule set and the right way to, um, you know, sort of read the rules. Uh, but other than that, build that D6 two D6 table, however you want, man, and, and get wacky with it. If, you know, if, if you're in an arcology, then build your arcology rule set. If you're um in a in a in a deep void um you know space station, then build that, you know, and and uh and have fun with it. Because I agree. I think ZM's worth it. I think it's the most fun you can have. Playing currently playing Horus heresy, that's the most fun you can have. Well
0: and, you know, big giant um just you know, big mega battles certainly have their place, um, but but there's something just more compelling and more almost world building with a ZM kind of game too. If you think about it, if you if you actually sit down and look at the rules and and try and use some of these cool scenarios,
2: yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what it's there for. Build your narrative, guys. Have fun. And do crazy shit. And put, put a lot of bulkheads in there. Don't make it easy. Don't make, don't make clear lines of sight. If you're not crossing your bridge and you can... Or if you're not facing catastrophic decompression, um, you're not doing it right. It's just my take
1: on it. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good take to have. It's zone mortalis, not zone like peaches and daisies.
0: Soon <laughs> boar talus. Thank you very much. Ha,
2: zing. All right, guys. Well, I think this, this, uh, yeah. this f- finishes our, our sisters of silence. You know, I think it was a lot of fun for, for us to do. And, uh, was a sort of test bed of our, of our Patreon. um, You know, you guys voted on it and you guys got it. So I don't know, Pat, are we going to do that again or where where are we doing?
0: I don't know what we're doing next. I think, I think we still have to, we still have to think about it and and discover it.
2: Yeah. We got to get through the holidays first, man.
0: Lord knows we've got a lot. But uh, Jason, Ed, we didn't uh, end your ZM talk too abruptly, did we?
1: Absolutely not. That oh, is fantastic. All the important ZM stuff you need to know.
0: Yeah. But uh, like, I guess uh, Dave, do you have anything else to add?
2: Um, I don't. I just want to say thank you uh, to our listeners. Uh, I don't know when this is going to release, but have a happy Thanksgiving. Or and or. Christmas and or holiday season. I don't know when we'll be back because we all have busy schedules, but uh, we'll be back as soon as we can. Um, I just got an update from Jesse. Jesse's working on the Bourbon Diaries, um, so they should be up on Patreon. Uh, don't know when they're going to be um, you know, up for you know, general audience, but, uh, I mean, they will sometime, but I know that he's working on them for Patreon now. So, uh, yeah. If you guys are on yeah. Patreon, you go, go check those out. Uh, if not, just wait a couple of weeks and for you. Yeah.
0: And I mean, again, I, I guess that was a plug. Um, my plug is definitely, uh, go check out our Patreon. I know it may kind of sound like we're trying to shove it down your guys' throats. I swear we're not. Um, but, yeah, I, I at least uh, I did the editing for Dave's first episode of the Bourbon Diaries, and there's some fantastic deep diving and just just talk about um, the Black Library books. And uh, Dave brings out some of those essays uh, from the writers, and it's it's fantastic stuff, guys. Um, And, and it's just Dave, not anybody else. Um, and I mean, it's worth a listen. It's I, short, I it's short it's
2: too. It's, it's in, like and, yeah, fifteen it's nice. twenty minutes.
0: Yeah. It's a good car lot li- car rides load of of knowledge, you know. And then some because then I started looking for the stuff that was in the first uh, episode. But um <laughs> Jason, do you have any plugs?
1: Uh I'd like to plug a nap. That'd yeah? be pretty terrific.
0: A nap? Yeah, I hear you, man. Oh, well, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And you'll hear back from us soon. Now, fuck off, Craig.
1: Fuck off, Craig.